go ahead and pick your speed up your number one now, runway 27, clear to land green dot. Welcome to Oshkosh, guys. Hello and welcome back to another episode of The Green Dot, EAA's podcast for anyone and everyone who loves aviation. The Green Dot, sponsored by GE Aviation. Welcome back. I'm one of your hosts. I'm Chris Henry of the EAA Aviation Museum. I'm the programs coordinator here. And uh, we're sitting in a different uh, scenario here. So today on my left... Tom Sharpentier, Government Relations Director. Well, Tom, uh, glad to have you here with me today. Uh, Ty is here, of course, running the the controls behind the curtain. And uh, we have two very special guests here with us today. Uh, all the way from Herbert Field, Florida, we have uh, Major Clay Tenike, and we have Technical Sergeant Alex Skidgel. I want to make sure I get your guys' uh, names right here. That's so, perfect. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't want to tick you guys off because you guys can make my house go away. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you guys so much. You guys are crew members on the AC-130 gunship. We are, yeah. It's really been uh, a neat community to be a part of, and uh, uh, really enjoyed every minute of it. Well, so tell us a little bit. How did you guys get into the current field that you're in? Uh, well, I was uh, always interested in aviation. Uh, started, you know, building model airplanes uh, with my dad, and my grandpa, and then a volunteer CAP. Uh, and then I just I knew it was in the cards for me to go to the Air Force. So and, uh, started right off in the gunship, and always been in the gunship. So eleven years uh, so far. Wow. So. Wow. How about you, Clay? I uh, grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area and uh, just going to watch airplanes with my dad. There's a lot of good airports to go, plane spotting out there between San Francisco and Oakland and go down to Moffett Field and see some military airplanes up at Travis. So just seeing planes fly over all the time uh, really got me excited for it. And then I learned about Civil Air Patrol just before getting into high school uh, and started learning more about aerospace and and some of the history involved with it and uh, just being an aviation geek ever since, really. That's awesome. Clay, do I understand it right? You were a young eagle, is that right? I did get a young eagle flight as a as a, a young middle schooler out in Concord, California. Uh, my dad worked with a guy who was in the EAA and got us to fly in his uh, Cessna 180, which was a, a great experience. Oh, that's awesome! That's awesome. So, how did you wind up on the uh, specifically on the AC 130? Um, do people generally start on the C 130 and matriculate into the AC 130, or did you just go straight in? And was it your first choice? You know, what's neat is uh, in the past, before 9 11, oftentimes you had to fly something else before you could come to Special Operations Command. Uh, and then Manning was so thin after 9 11 with all the deployments, they started to allow guys to come straight to gunships. So, Alex and I are what you call gunship babies, uh, which has been great because we could come straight to the community. And uh, when I was in Air Force Canada, cadet they took us on a trip to Kirtland and before then I didn't really know what I wanted to fly I was pretty open to anything but uh, we got to fly on a Talon 2 and then on an MH 53 and and get to see a little bit of what special operations flying is like uh, and you know just the teamwork involved with it the camaraderie the leadership uh, and starting to talk to one or two gunship people that were at the Academy at the time and hear what those missions were like I thought, yeah, this is definitely what I want to do and uh, so from day one of pilot training, I said, I really hope I can get to gunships. I, I don't think I will initially. I, I'll probably fly something else and then get to gunships. But uh, whether it was karma or timing, uh, it, it really worked out and, and got to go to the 16th Special Operations Squadron. Oh. Alex, about, about the same thing for you? Uh, no, so I'm enlisted, so I took a, a different avenue. Um, I, uh, when I enlisted, I uh, told my recruiter, don't call me unless gunner drops because I, I, <laughs> I wasn't interested in anything else. And uh, it was just funny because he was like, well, you know, that might take a year. And I was like, well, I guess I'll hear from you in a year. Um, so it wasn't that quite that long, but uh, signed a gunner only, and that, like I said, that was the only thing I was going to accept. Um, and uh, you know, went through BMT, then I got to the uh, flight program and uh, straight into the 16th SOS. So uh, our side of the house, uh, listed side, is a lot faster, I think, than the officer side, um, just because uh, you know we don't have the, uh, the lengthy uh, pilot training process, and uh, our schoolhouse is a bit uh, trimmed down, if you will. 
So when you talk about Gunner, can you talk a little bit about the size of an AC-130 crew and uh, and kind of what everybody does? Oh, yeah. Uh, what front, if you want to start with the pilot? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, what's neat is we do have a large crew compared to some airplanes. You know, there's, there's 13 of us on there for a normal combat mission. Uh, at home, though, we can have up to 21 on board between students, instructors, evaluators, everyone getting training. And uh, also sometimes we'll have our ground forces fly along with us, too. So we might have an Army ground force commander fly along just to see uh, his troops on the ground and watch how the missions are going down. Uh, but up front, uh, we've got the aircraft commander uh, in charge of leading the mission and getting things done. Uh, he's assisted by our co-pilot, and we have a flight engineer as well. And flight engineers are, uh, much like on the V-17s, our systems expert. Uh, he's the one who's running uh, all, all of our normal onboard systems and just keeping an eye on the engines and everything that we use to get the mission done. Um, from there, we work back in the aircraft. Uh, we call it our battle management center, and that's where the rest of our tactical crew sit. So our sensor operators, we have an infrared uh, and a TV sensor operator, and they're basically the eyeballs of the gunship. They're operating our, our visual sensors. Uh, and then next to them, you've got the navigator and the fire control officer. Uh, fire control officer is overseeing the whole situation on the ground uh, and recommending weapons uh, and fuse combinations to the pilot for uh, employment. Uh, and the navigator, it's often unknown that the navigator is really the voice of the gunship. So when we're talking to the JTAC on the ground, he's actually talking to the navigator. Uh, he, he is the voice of everything that's going on the plane, condensing all our inputs, and then pushing them out uh, to something that makes sense and that's usable for the JTAC. Uh, right behind him is the EWO, our electronic warfare officer. And his uh, job is basically defense of the aircraft. So he operates all our defensive systems, provides me as a pilot with recommendations. Uh, you know, okay, what's the threats in the area? If we do get shot at, what's our plan of action? Uh, what are we going to do from there? And then I'll pass it to Alex to talk about the gunners and scanners and load. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so uh, there's uh, five of us in the back. Uh, there used to be a split. There was a, you had four gunners and one loadmaster, but they changed that now. We're all called uh, special missions aviators. So we have the same job. Uh, there's a conception out there. People think that uh, you only get qualified on one weapon, uh, but we're actually qualified on all of them. Uh, so we're completely interchangeable. Um, so with five of us, uh, you're going to have a right scanner and then a load, the traditional loadmaster position filled by a guy in the back uh, looking out the bubble uh, all night. And they're going to primarily work with the pilots and the EWO to talk about threats um, and just overall uh, kind of situational awareness outside of uh, the ground party. Um, and then uh, your other gunners in the back are going to be listening to the radios and uh, waiting for that piece of, uh, we call it the spiel coming down, where uh, you start hearing the, the key words that, uh, you know, fire mission's coming. Uh, and then uh, we're waiting in the back to, you know, see which weapon they're going to pick, uh, what fuse they want, the integration piece. Um, and then really from there, it's just a... Uh, once we get our, our gun select lights, basically uh, arm the weapons up and then just uh, feed the ammunition, fixing the guns when needed. Um, and it could be a real short night or a real, real long night, depending on how that goes. So. Alex is uh, what we call uh, a lead gunner as well. So of the whole gun deck, we have a lead gun, uh, and he's my representative in the back to let me know what's going on. Uh, if there's a malfunction, what are we doing to fix it? What's the time like? Can I move to another gun? And really, he's the leader of, of everybody behind me in the airplane. So uh, a big responsibility. So one of the questions Tom and I were ha uh, had, we were sort of talking the other day, was um, typically are you guys sort of orbiting already, or is it a situation where you get scrambled from the uh, from a base, like when you're when you're flying in combat? How does that how does that work? Uh, so I think it's changed. Um, yeah, we're, we can always we're always on call basically, um, but uh, we can do either. So uh, either you know the long loiter time of kind of building that picture of uh, what's what's happened over the course of the night, or like you said, you, we might be over uh, one mission and uh, here, you know, some, some mission somewhere else is going south, or, you know, or a bad mission is coming down, so uh, we'll, we'll depart and go over there, take care of it, and come back sometimes. 
So I say very dynamic. Absolutely, yeah. We may go out, uh, wake up in the morning, and you think, hey, we're going to this mission set. It may change five times between what we actually end up on that night. Uh, you know, God forbid a helicopter gets shot down, get retasked over to that, uh, or anything else, uh, time-sensitive targets, things that pop up uh, that we need to go do to, we can, uh, or go even just get eyes on something that uh, people want to see what's going on on the ground. There has to be a, a, a pretty good, I, I mean, a good yet tense feeling knowing that uh, you, you know, you guys are close air support. You're 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 helping people on the ground that are probably in a bad way or can be in a bad way. Um, do you you know when we we had a, a Tomcat uh, a pilot here, Megan, who mentioned that you know it was all fun and games until that first call came out where she was going to go and be close air support with the Tomcat, uh, and then that certainly changed the tone of her mission. Uh, do you guys feel that too? I mean, when you get a call that you you know that um, you know someone's in trouble and needs some help. Absolutely. Really, close air support is our bread and butter mission set, uh, and we like to pride ourselves in that day we just can take a, a call sign, a frequency, and a location. You give us those three things, and we can come and help you wherever you're at. Doesn't matter if you're a JTAC qualified or uh, just a, a, a you know a conventional troop that's on the ground getting shot at. We want to come and help you the best we can. And um, like you said, sometimes it is an alert launch where everyone's running to get out and get in the air as quick as we can. Uh, other times it'll just pop up while we're overhead in operation. It may be a quiet night, uh, nothing's happened for hours, and all of a sudden you've got a bunch of bad guys running out of a building with an RPG, and it just surprises everybody. So you can feel uh, the mood change. Uh, everyone sits up in their seat, and uh, we're just ready to, to get to work. This might be a basic question, but you keep saying night. Do you, do you primarily operate at, at, at night? Do you fly a lot of daytime missions at all? We do primarily operate at night, uh, and that has changed over the years, too, in gunship history. So there was uh, a lot of tough lessons learned. Uh, you know, we lost a gunship uh, during the Gulf War with Spirit 03 uh, because it had stayed out into the daytime uh, to continue prosecuting targets, and, and it was shot down. Um, so for over the years, it really depends what environment we're in, uh, if we would fly a day mission or not. And, you know, we, it's always a balance of a risk to the airplane versus a risk to the ground force. So if the, the risk is higher to the ground force and we can stay longer and we need to, uh, we absolutely will. Um, but then we have to evaluate uh, what's, what's the surface air threat look like to us as well. It, do, it does no good for us to have 14 more guys on the ground just because uh, we're out of the fight now too. Uh, so really that's a, a leadership and a crew discussion about what we can accept risk-wise. Alex, I got to ask you something. As a gunship nerd here, full out, uh, anybody listening knows that I am. Um, Man, what's it like to fire that 105 off the back of that airplane? That has to be pretty cool. There's nothing like it. I mean, you're talking, you know, 105 millimeters. Um, if you ever seen the videos, that it recoils 49 inches, um, and just the power and force behind it, uh, you know, buckle your knees. Um, it's hard because you, know, you, you, that's it's normal now, but it's always you know, that first round of the day. You're just like, you know, it's, it's something amazing. Um, I don't, th I don't think anything can prepare you for it. Uh, wow. So. It's something you feel all the way up front, too. I mean, obviously, Alex is right in the heart of it back there, but we can feel a kick uh, even while we're flying around up front, too. And uh, if you've ever been on the ground, our, our safety distances are a couple of hundred meters, really. But even at that distance, when you feel the 105 explode, it still kind of rocks your chest. And for those listening who maybe aren't familiar with gunships, uh, uh, the AC-130 actually has a, a 105 howitzer in the back of the airplane. So it's a it's literally a flying artillery piece uh, uh, that they have. At, uh, that has to be the largest caliber weapon uh, in an airplane, I would think, uh, that's up there flying a, a regular mission. So. I think gut-wise, it is. We always joke it's sort of like a pirate ship uh, up there, so we're, uh, we have a good time with that. Well, I was I was um, talking to Chris about this before the podcast, but my my grandfather um, was in a um, M7 Priest battery during the Battle of the Bulge, 
So they were firing 105s off of Sherman tank chassis, and you guys have it in an airplane. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 It's a uh, the crazy idea they came up with it, and sure enough, it has worked out uh, well as a weapon system. Um, have you ever had a chance to uh, maybe meet ground forces that you help support and maybe got out of a tough situation? Has that ever happened where after the fact you got a chance to actually unite? Uh, absolutely, yeah. That's actually uh, one of the biggest things I think we try to focus on is uh, the integration piece, um, because you know, there there are you know brothers and sisters on the ground, uh, and uh, you know the, the the voice on the radio. You know you want to see the people behind it. Um, so I, I think that's a something that I think the community wise is uh, very important that we make sure we actually do. So a lot of times, you know, when we're let's say in Afghanistan, those guys are stationed all over the country. So when they rotate home, we say, well, when you come through, you know, try and meet up with us, and we can take you out to the airplane and you know hear their side of the story, and then we'll show them the video as we were seeing things go down, and uh, really they could see another perspective of the mission that they were seeing firsthand. It was funny. Uh, uh, it's not funny, but it's a, it's a cool quote uh, that I don't know if you guys ever heard, but uh, we had uh, Mike Durant here, who was the Black Hawk Down helicopter pilot that was uh, actually saved out of the Somalia shoot down in Mogadishu. And uh, it, we did a Thomas Voices interview with him, and actually his clo- one of his, his, what I thought was cool moments was he said, uh, I got really feeling alone because they, they had, you know, he goes, I was hostage at this point and captive. And, uh, and he said until uh, uh, one night a, a single AC-130 came over and fired off a single round. And he goes, and the guys came in, and I could see the folks that had me captive were scrambling and he said uh, that was my first kind of line of hope that maybe I'm getting out of here after all is these guys came in and they were they're were yelling at me pointing at the ceiling and they're saying AC AC and he's like I gave him a thumbs up and was like yeah I know what that is <laughs> <So>. <laughs> it is you know it's amazing just the sound of that airplane uh, nowadays the bad guys will know that and a lot of times just the sound is enough to keep people inside which is a good thing for the guys on the ground so. yeah. how long is a typical mission how long do you guys loiter it really depends. One thing that's neat with the, the Special Operations C-130s is we have the ability to air-to-air refuel. So, you know, we could be on a shorter mission that's only a couple of hours, or all of us have been on those nights where we go up and refuel three times, and it goes 12, 13 hours. Uh, so that can be a, a pretty long night, and, and like you said, oftentimes into the day as well. So it really depends, uh, and I've, I've given up trying to guess over the years if it's going to be a, a short night or a long night. You just <laughs> never know what's going to happen. Is it... Uh, um you know, one of the things we talked about is from your side of it, while Alex is in the back working on lining up targets and, and eliminating threats, um, are you kind of just flying a sort of a just a, a sort of a lazy left turn the whole time? Is that kind of what you do? So for us, we have a fire control system that basically provides what we call nominals for us. Uh, and up front, I have a set of needles that I fly. And it, for those who are familiar with an ILS, it almost looks like you're flying an ILS. Uh, and we have an orbit that's set up based off of what altitude, what airspeed, what angle of bank we want to fly. Uh, and then those change based on uh, as we climb or descend throughout the mission. Um, so I fly off of that, and then when the sensors are looking around for targets, uh, that's what's going to drive my guidance as well. So the sensor finds the bad guys in a tree line, let's say. Um, the fire control officer is going to select that guidance. I will fly over to that target set, and those nominals basically are designed to keep me on tangent, which is on the orbit, uh, and then the right bank angle uh, for an engagement. Wow. So you're uh, – for – for pilots who are, uh, you know, studying for their commercial or something, you're really good at your pylon turns. 
Uh, that is one of the things we always joke. We don't turn right anymore. I can't turn right. I have to go left. Uh, that's all I can do. It's like Ricky Bobby. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> that's funny. So uh, another question I had, and I know that we talked about it earlier, was Alex in the back, what do you do with all the spent shell casings? Uh, on, a, on a good, uh, crazy, heavy night, we're just chucking them in the back, and we'll clean them up later. Uh, but really, on the 25-millimeter, the uh, there's a, a system that collects them for us. Uh, eventually, it'll fill up. We'll have to clear it out so we can continue to fire. Uh, the 40 millimeter, um, it kicks them out of the back into uh, these big uh, bags, basically. Uh, we'll just uh, every now and then have to, you know, take it down, do a bag change, get the weapon back online. Uh, and then the 105, it really, we're just throwing it behind us. Uh, and then uh, w- once we're done, we'll clean it up and put them back in the racks. So that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, if it's a busy night, we've done, you know, crew shoots where it looks like a Game of Thrones thrown because <laughs> you'll just have all these 105s lined up on the ramp by the time we land. So it's always kind of neat. Yeah. Kind of to add to the effect of, um, you know, in combat, a lot of time we don't have time to um, do things, you know, in training. So in training, you know, we um, leave the round kind of by the breach and it'll pull a lot of the smoke out. But, um, you know, it's a heavy night. We're just throwing them in the back and it's just covered in smoke and it's hard to see. It's, uh, it's kind of an awesome sight. Wow. Alex has a tough job, too. On the first gunship we flew, uh, it was always unpressurized. And so, you know, those guys are in the back. Wintertime, 16,000 feet over Afghanistan, just trying not to, you know, freeze their tails off. So it uh, it does kind of harken back to, like, the B-17 days like we were talking about. And even now in the U-model gunship, if we shoot, we still depressurize for the most part. So, uh, so those guys are having to deal with the conditions as well as doing their job. Now, do you guys have like a set crew that you fly with the same guys all the time, or does that change out? At home, we uh, change every day, uh, and downrange we do what we call hard combat crews. So uh, those tend to be the same people every uh, every day, which really helps us have good crew resource management. You start to hear everybody's voice; you know exactly who the person is by their voice uh, without ever seeing them. And then uh, a good crew can gel so so well that uh, it makes the mission pretty seamless. You talked a little bit about everybody's role and, you know, how there is a large crew because there's, uh, there's, there's a lot to do and a lot to manage. But how do you control um, the chaos of a, you know, a, very, a very tough mission, you know, where, where, you know, there's bad guys everywhere on the ground? I think uh, being disciplined as far as communications is a huge thing for us. So, you know, when you've got 13 people on board and things are going crazy quickly, uh, just maintaining a calm voice uh, and knowing when to speak and when to take a pause. Obviously, if the JTAC's talking to us on the radios, everyone knows to be quiet. Let's hear what the the ground guys are saying. uh, And then we can start chatting after that, too. But uh, just filtering down the chaos and people knowing, okay, it's my time to talk. Uh, and what can we do to condense all those communications efficiently? Uh, it helps on the airplane, too. We have a bunch of different nets. Uh, so we have tons of radios uh, that go outside the airplane. But internally, we have a main net that everybody is listening to. And then there's private nets. So there's a, what we call a P1 network. The gunners and the engineer are on that primarily. Uh, P2 is for the tactical crew back in the battle management center. And the pilots are up on that as well. And so tactical discussions are happening on P2. Gun systems discussions are happening on P1, and then each part of the airplane has uh, an isolated net, too. So up front, we have a flight deck isolated net, so just the the pilots and the engineers are talking. So let's say we have an engine issue while we're shooting. I don't need to bring that up across the whole plane because the BMC is focused on shooting. The guns are focused on the guns. The engineers and the pilots can just talk about, okay, let's how can we deal with this engine issue, get through the fire mission, and, and then we'll talk to the whole crew. Here's what the plan is, guys. Next time I fly the 172 and I'm uh, isolating the the uh, pilot and co-pilot, so I can listen to Adis while the people in the back are talking. I'm going to call that the uh, the the uh, cockpit isolated. Yeah, there, there you go. go. You're exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we didn't have that in the Cherokee. You would just like shut up a minute. I'm trying to get the, <laughs> trying to get the Adis here. <laughs> um, so I mean, one of the questions that uh, I, I did want to uh, 
to, to ask was, and it, we, we kind of were talking about it last night, was, uh, you know, the AC-130 has been in service since Vietnam. And from time to time, it sounded like you guys were actually able to kind of reunite with some of the, the Vietnam veterans or veterans from different eras with the, with the aircraft. Is that correct? Yes, sir. Um, I think uh, the, there's always the, the gunship reunion uh, annually. Um, and then uh, we talked last night about the, uh, the the Stinger, you know, having all the um, the 119 guys come out in the Stinger program uh, for the renaming of the uh, AC-130 Whiskey model, um, and uh, that was that was a pretty big event. Uh, big event. Uh, What's neat is a lot of those guys live around us down in Florida too, so it's it's easy to get them to come back, and we'll do training days every month. Maybe bring one of them in to talk to us about you know lessons learned from Vietnam or Panama or Grenada, whatever it might be, and. Uh, a lot of those lessons still hold true for what we do now, too. So we try and remember that, you know, we've shaped the past. We don't need to relearn those lessons. Wow. Yeah, I remember um, you know, just watching archival videos of, like, the AC-47s, you know, back in Vietnam. And it's, you know, literally just an optical gun sight, <laughs> you know, <laughs> out the left window. Absolutely. And there's uh, one thing we were talking about this morning, too, is uh, the great thing with the gunship besides the big crew is is being able to go out with degraded systems. So just because a gun breaks or a mission computer breaks, it doesn't mean we're coming home. We have multiple backups uh, to make sure that we can continue to prosecute the mission uh, and then also degraded ways to shoot the guns. So there's uh, hydraulics that we tie to the guns. So the guns will actually move with the sensors. And that's our most accurate trainable way of shooting. But we can uh, degrade that down to where we fix the guns down all the way down to basically Vietnam style where we have a, a reticle in the pilot's heads-up display and we're shooting off of that if all the systems uh, uh, go down on us. So we really do have uh, uh, multiple ways to still get rounds out of that airplane. And Alex, uh, that's something that uh, the Blackhawk guys just can't do, is it? Oh, uh, you know, it's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's definitely out there. <laughs> There's an inside joke there. So. <laughs> something about a trigger. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, uh, sorry. Speaking of that, yeah. um, with degraded OPSA, if it does get down to electrics are um, out of the out of the fight, uh, we can manually uh, kind of like you know uh, uh, artillery style pull, you know, to actuate the weapons um, or uh, um, you know manipulate it in a way that'll actually fire the weapon. We call it manual or lanyard fire. Um, so that's a lot of trust too, because I got to wait for his call exactly when he's lined up to you know we call it you know saying ready, ready, fire. Um, and, that, and that's one in the back we got to actuate it, and there's, there's a lot of trust that happens in there. And they actually have a lanyard tied to that gun, and they're pulling it, much like you would see uh, yep. an old-style cannon being shot. So, wow, it's, uh, it's really a pirate ship. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you guys yeah, are yeah. joking. <laughs> Somebody forgets it. We just take the new guy's shoestrings. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Also, yeah, I was going to ask, you know, the little, you know, the little stick with the with, with the smoldering, uh, you know, yep. fuse on it. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Touch yeah. it to the back of the gun. <laughs> Someone's back there with a the sword watching things yeah. go down. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and one of the things I always thought was cool with the gunships, and especially the, the 130s, is uh, uh, it's one of the areas where you start to see aircraft names and nose art still still mm -hmm. around. Absolutely. Um, is, is there one aircraft that maybe stands out for you guys that you like to fly on or, or meant something special to you? Uh, I think 7-2 uh, is a heavy metal. Uh, that one, uh, no matter through all my deployments, it, it was always there when I was there. So it, for me, that was kind of like that, uh, you know, that, that static thing that I always had. So it was kind of... You know, it was all the old girls over there, you know, so it was always nice to see her. So I think there's always different uh, ones that have a special place for each person, too, whether it was you got your first check ride on this airplane or this was the first airplane you shot in combat with as well. And uh, one of ours was uh, tail number 6-8, and we used to call it sick 8 because it was always having maintenance problems. <laughs> but I had my check ride on it. I shot on it. So it, it'll always hold a special place in my heart, even if uh, she required a little bit more maintenance. <laughs> so. All right. So within the bounds of what you could talk about, uh, is there any um, any missions that, that particularly stick out to you as, as memorable or, um, you know, ones that will stay with you? 
Do you want to start, Alex? Uh, yeah. So there. Um, I just remember, you know, there's a, there's an old colonel we used to fly with, and uh, our normal is the extraordinary, you know. So uh, I think every night in the you know in a combat zone with an AC-130 is a very uh, memorable, if you will, you know. But uh, the, the ones that do kind of rise above that normal, you know, crazy night that you're having. Um, uh, there was, you know, there's one with the uh, the McKay Trophy, obviously, um, and uh, that one I think just uh, really my eyes to how fast things can go bad because you know you're used to that, but that one that night just it was just so much faster, um, and uh, you know everything has a limitation. So uh, blowing through our warnings and cautions and notes, um, pushing the weapons past what they can handle, um, and it's not so much you're going to break the weapon, but you're you're inviting, you know, um, you know if a gunner makes a mistake, then you know, that weapon can blow up inside the airplane, and then you know that's that's a completely different night we're going to have. Um, so that one, I think, just uh, was eye-opening to uh, just just how far and fast things can go um, when you're already used to a high high level of uh, speed and uh, you know uh, you know things going bad. So I think there's uh, like you mentioned with chaos too. It can be chaos uh, from time to time on on the mission sets, and and those are the uh, the really long nights too. But then there's other times where uh, there's things just seem to come together pretty well, and uh, you know the enemy may keep coming out and coming out and coming out, but. Uh, you know, we have a good working relationship with the Apache guys, and uh, we're integrating with them and the fighters, and the ground party is happy and safe, and we, everybody gets home safe at the end of the night. Uh, and really, you know, it, uh, it might have seemed uh, fairly crazy, but that, that's kind of just what we do in gunships. Well, I have to say thank you guys for coming. Uh, I, I have to be completely and bluntly honest when I emailed Herbert Field. Uh, I never in a million years thought that that would work. <laughs> so I'm like, there's no way we're going to get somebody from the first style to come up here. And, and uh, I was shocked to get an email back and they were like, yeah, we can support this and send somebody up there. And, and, um, and, you know, uh, and then to get you guys, it, it has just been fantastic. You guys are great ambassadors of the program and into the, of the unit. So well, thanks. Chris. Thank you so much. Appreciate it guys. Thank you. Well, Chris, I, I'm, I guess my, my job when, when you and I are together is usually I'm trying to, I, I try to draw the stories you've told me before out of you. Uh, you wound up at, at, the, at Hurlburt by accident one time, didn't you? <laughs> I did. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and hopefully he gets to hear this, but uh, myself and Tony Zeroya uh, were in a medical helicopter, uh, civilian medical helicopter program back home in Pittsburgh and uh, took a trip down to Pensacola and uh, uh, we're, we're like, hey, we're not that far from Eglin Air Force Base. There's a museum there. Let's go check out this museum. And uh, we're, this is, you got to keep in mind, guys, for, for the younger generation, this is like first generation GPS uh, that we were using. So we're sort of uh, just kind of winging it a little bit. And uh, from the road, we're driving along the beach, and there's a, an A Model 130 sitting out there by the road, sort of. And I'm like, oh, cool. Like, there's the museum. Like, we're here. So we pull up to the gate, and the guy is the guard comes out and he's just kind of curious that we're wearing like jeans and steeler shirts and stuff, you know? And he's like, um, can I help you? And we're like, yeah, we're just here to see the museum, you know? And he's like, yeah, where do you think you are? And, uh, I was like, this is, this is Eglin. And, uh, a key point of this, by the way, is the sign for the base was being redone. So <laughs> there was no sign out by the base. So, and there's all these airplanes, there's an invader and there's a C-119. So it's like, clearly this is a museum. And uh, the guy's like, yeah, this is an Eglin. And he just kind of laughs. And he's like, you from Pittsburgh? And we're like, yeah. He goes, yeah, me too. And he goes, park your car. Come on in. I'll show you around the air park here. And here we had driven up to Herbert Field accidentally, home of like the Air Force Special Operations. And 
totally tourists thinking that we're at the air museum and we're like why is all the security around this air museum i yeah. mean it said it was open to the public and and then uh, it was very briefly after that that we realized that we had made a wrong turn and we were not at the air museum but uh, they were very gracious and and real awesome uh, about it all and then eventually we did make our way to the air museum so good deal but, yeah that's my run-in with herbert well that that air park sounds really awesome though i i've i've, I've got to see it someday yeah they said you said it was basically like the gunship versions of pretty much everything it's yeah it's here. it's the it's it's really the lineage of the gunships, and and kudos to whoever at your base takes care of those aircraft because they're they're kept in remarkable condition. I mean, they they look like they can start up, you know, today. I mean, they're 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 kept real beautifully. Uh, so yeah, I don't know how you'll do it, Tom, but uh, yeah, <laughs> let us know. We'll, yeah, uh, we'll, yeah, we'll yeah. take care of it. Don't make a wrong turn trying to get to to the Armament Museum. So <laughs> that's well, great. I, I, again, thank you guys for coming on. We, we really greatly appreciate it. Uh, by the way, the crew is here uh, right now. We are in May, um, mid-May, but uh, they're actually here to, as part of the speaker series. Every third Thursday uh, at the museum, we have a speaker series, and they've been gracious enough uh, to come up. The first sales has been gracious enough to, to, uh, to send you guys here, and uh, we're having a good time doing airplane stuff. So uh, thank you to all parties involved to make this possible, and we're looking forward to, to your talk tonight. So. Yeah, thanks, guys. Thanks well, thank you. Well, for everybody listening in, we appreciate you tuning into the Green Dot. Thank you for leaving us those reviews. Uh, they really mean a lot. It's proof that we can go back and say, look, people don't hate us. Uh, so uh, please keep leaving them. Uh, the positive ones, the negative ones, just email Tom. <laughs> and uh, thank you just so much for, for tuning in, for listening, for sharing this with people. And uh, we look forward to seeing you the next time when you're cleared to land on the Green Dot. 